Hey, Makoto team, thank you. That was beautiful, beautiful. Um, if you are here for the first time, welcome. We're glad that you're here. My name is Sean. It's probably to be one of the pastors on staff here. Um, we are starting a new series, as, uh, as you have heard. Um, we're going to look at the seven I am statements of Jesus. Um, let me begin, though, by, by introducing you to uh, James Smith. Uh, James Smith uh, graduated from Sam Houston uh, University in Texas. Uh, he had a very successful career in the marketplace and then uh, retired um, three years ago. And Sam uh, has uh, been married to his wife, Sherry, for 30 years. He has two older kids, um, Jeremy and Tiffany. Both of them have kids of their own. Um, and Sam just... Uh, is more proud than anything of his grandbabies. He has seven grandbabies, and he just loves his grandbabies. He's just like, he's crazy about his grandbabies. Like they, he's the kind of guy that will like show up at every soccer game, at every recital. Like He's there. He just loves on them. In fact, um, his oldest grandbaby, uh, she, she loved um, playing dress-up and tea with, with her dolls when she was a baby. And so when she turned 16, uh, which was last month, uh, he flew her to New York, and they booked into a swanky hotel that served English tea. You know, like the fancy English tea where you have to like hold your finger up like that when you drink and you have cucumber sandwiches. Uh, so uh, yeah, he just dotes on his, on his grandbabies. He loves them so much. Uh, he has a dog, uh, a golden doodle named uh, Oliver. And Oliver uh, just got neutered uh, because he was so excited. You know, he's kind of like a hyperactive dog. So they snipped him just to think he would like calm him down. Um, so uh, James Smith, now, um, yeah, here's a small confession. Um, I've never met James Smith. I, I don't know who James Smith is, uh, honestly. Um, and, and in fact, um, if I met James Smith, he would probably be really freaked out right now. So James, if you are hearing this, uh, you know, don't, you know uh, you're wondering why on earth I'm talking about you. Um, but, but here's something that I think is really important. Um, um, there's the point of all of this. Um, psychologists, social psychologists tell us um, there's a big difference between knowing about someone and actually knowing someone, right? So knowing about someone and knowing uh, about someone. Uh, to know about someone, they call that uh, impersonal knowledge. And to actually know someone, to actually know someone, you need to have personal knowledge. Um, and so kind of this is not a, a Christian thing or a human thing, so like maybe step away from my Bible over here. Uh, this is just a, 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 just a secular uh, psychologist, how they would define it. They would say, um, for, for me to actually, uh, to, to have impersonal knowledge about someone, and most of our relationships are like this, we'd consider them an acquaintance, right? Uh, we, we know them well enough to be able to recognize them, uh, and we know enough about them to be able to enter into some kind of conversation with them. You know, we can begin a conversation with them. And, and, and so, but for me to actually uh, know someone personally, it would have to go deeper than that. So, uh, for instance, James Smith, if I met James Smith today, if he happened to be sitting in the uh, sanctuary by some weird coincidence, um, and, and I would recognize him because of his Facebook profile, right? That's kind of where I found all that information. All that information about James Smith uh, was from his Facebook profile. And I could, um, you know, I'd recognize him and I could enter into a conversation with him uh, because I know some stuff about him. Like I, I could go like, hey, James, how's your wife Sherry doing, right? And man, that was so touched my heart to hear about you taking your granddaughter to New York. That was a, must have been special, right? And, and how is Oliver doing, you know, after the snip snip? Is he okay? Uh, you know, I could, I could enter into a conversation with him, which would be really awkward and weird for James, right? Because he'd be like, who on earth are you and how do you know all this stuff about me? And he would probably, if he learned that I've been stalking him on Facebook, he would probably be a little creeped out, and rightly so, right? 
And, and so the, the information I have about James is, is just impersonal knowledge, right? Uh, but it's enough for me to kind of engage with him in, in a sort of meaningful way. Um, but, but for me to truly know James Smith, psychologists would say I, I would need to have some more intimate, private knowledge about him, knowledge that wasn't necessarily public uh, information. You know, stuff that I couldn't find on Facebook. So what it would require is that I would have to sit down with James and have it across the table and have a meaningful dialogue with him, a conversation with him. Um, and, and, and maybe during that time, as we build time together and build trust in our relationship, James might start opening up some of the things on his heart, some of the, his fears, uh, maybe the, the concerns he has in the world, because James is pretty socially uh, conservative, and so he probably has got some concerns about the direction the world's going. And, and maybe he would share some of his hopes and his dreams for his grandbabies. He's got seven of them, so he's probably got a lot of hopes and dreams for his grandbabies. Uh, and, and maybe he'll, he'll, he'll kind of uh, tell me about some of the things that keep him up at night, and some of the things uh, were the reason why he feels such contentment and joy in the season of his life. Uh, things that, that, that would, would not, I would not be able to find out on Facebook. Right? It would require some personal one-on-one -on -one time. It, it would be knowledge that, that, that would be earned after lovingly investing uh, in his life over some time. And, and so that would be personal knowledge as opposed to impersonal knowledge. Um, and, and so um, the reason why I, I kind of wanted to intro the series um, in this way um, is because I've been in ministry long enough um, to know that in our culture today, uh, there are many people who claim to know Jesus. Right. Lots of people claim to know Jesus. Um, and, and some of you might actually you know, even be here tonight. Um, you, know, you attend church, it's kind of what you do. Um, and you, you maybe even you give, you serve, you kind of do the religious thing. Um, um, but Jesus is still kind of like a Facebook friend. Right? I, you, you know some things about him, right? You, you know enough to maybe recognize him, sort of, and maybe you uh, know enough about him to enter into a conversation with him, um, but you don't actually know him personally. Uh, you know some things about him. Uh, maybe those things have been informed by someone like me, a pastor or a teacher. Uh, maybe you, you, you know that, that's been informed by maybe your grandparents or your parents if they were Christians. Uh, maybe informed by the culture or some things that you've heard. Um, but you've never really spent any time with him personally. Um, it's not intimate personal knowledge that you've gained from Jesus imparted through, through, through some time, meaningful time spent with him, um, in relationship with him. And, and so my hope is that in this series, um, as we examine these seven I am statements of Jesus, um, that we don't simply learn some more things about Jesus, right? Uh, as important as, you know, the things that Jesus did and the things that Jesus said are, um, sometimes that's all we know about him. Right? And, and sometimes b b between all the things he did and all the things we said, we actually get to miss Jesus and who he is. Um, and so rather than embark on a journey of, of um, um, you know, just impersonal knowledge about Jesus, my hope is that we'll embark on a journey um, where, where we'll engage around the person of Jesus Christ in this series. Um, and, and this is really important. That's why I think it's important um, that if we're to grow in our relationship with Jesus, our confidence in Jesus, uh, in, in what Jesus has done for us, is directly tied to who Jesus is. And so if we don't um, know Jesus, who Jesus is, uh, it, it kind of uh, undermines the confidence in what he's accomplished for us. And, and so knowing who Jesus is 
um, is a critically important part of this journey of what it means for us to be followers of Jesus. Um, now, here's something that the, the Apostle Paul taught that was uh, incredibly important, really powerful truth that he claims. Um, in 2 Corinthians, he says this in chapter 3, verse 18. He says, we are all. Someone say, we're all. Right? And now he's talking to Christians, right? If you're not a Christian yet today, uh, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, but for those of us who are, are kind of followers of Jesus Christ, so he's talking to Christians. So he says, all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord. So with unveiled faces, we're beholding. Um, and, and I love that word beholding. It's kind of an old school word, but it basically means to, to continually gaze upon, to, to look upon steadfastly, uh, to, to study, to contemplate. The, the person of Jesus, the glory of who Jesus is. And, and through that process of beholding, Paul says that we are being transformed. Someone say transformed. Changed, right? Changed uh, into the same image from, the one, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. You know, in the, in the past six weeks, if you've been journeying with us, we've been in the series called The Power to Change. And, and in that series, um, my hope is that we gave you some very practical tools in that process of change. But I think the most powerful tool that we have in the process of personal transformation and spiritual transformation is this, this, this uh, practice, if you will, of beholding of beholding Jesus and not what Jesus has said and not what Jesus has done. All those things are, are closely related, um, but, but who Jesus is. Beholding the beauty of Jesus, the character of Jesus, the person of Jesus. And the only way that happens is through personal knowledge. It's not something that, that, that I can share with you about, I mean, I can. I can share with you who Jesus is and things he's said and done. But for you to actually know Jesus, you have to enter into a personal relationship with him. You have to be able to spend some time with him, some, some, some deep face-to-face -face time, you know, um, and, and be in conversation with him and relationship with him to truly get to know him. And it's in the knowing of Jesus that he begins to impart uh, the, the, the aspects of his nature that, that are not necessarily public knowledge, right? There's a, there's a beautiful revelation that comes through relationship uh, that, that you have with uh, people that you're in deep and personal relationship with that is not necessarily public knowledge to everyone, right? And, and the same is true with Jesus. Um, and, and so this idea of beholding, you know, the author of Hebrews would say it another way. It says uh, that we ought to fix our eyes upon Jesus, right? That, that, that if we're going to run this race with endurance, and, and remember from the last series, we said, like, we've got to run to win, right? If we're going to run, we need to... Uh, Throw off all those things that hinder us, and then we need to fix our eyes, all right? So we, we need to behold. We need to steadily gaze at. We need to know what we're running towards and to whom we're running towards and to whom we're becoming. Uh, and, and so this series, my hope is, as we journey towards Easter and the resurrection, um, that we're going to behold Jesus. And we're going to behold Jesus through the lens of these seven I am statements that he makes in the Gospel of John. And so tonight we're going to begin with one of the first ones, uh, which is in John chapter 6. So if you've got a copy of the scriptures, you can open up there uh, to John chapter 6. There are Bibles in the seat back pockets. Uh, if you need the lights turned up, uh, maybe we can do that. Um, I do encourage you guys to bring your Bibles. Uh, this is, uh, you, know, uh, the, you know, nowadays there's so many great Bible apps you can uh, just use on your, on your phone so you don't actually carry your Bible around if you don't want. But some people like flipping through the pages, and that's good. There's something really cool and encour encouraging to me when I hear the, the pages ruffle in the sanctuary. It just feels like old school and good. Uh, so you can do that. And maybe see if you can turn the sanctuary lights up so people who are 
electronic read can actually see if they're not up already. Maybe they are. Okay. Um, maybe that's just my eyes. Whoa. Okay. Here we go. All right, so let me take a minute. We'll pause, we'll pray, and then we'll jump in and see what the Lord has for us. And so, Heavenly Father, I do thank you for each and every one of my friends, my family members, and even those that I don't know that are here tonight, Father. Uh, I know that uh, you have pulled us here, brought us here for purpose. Um, and so as we gather um, around your name, Lord Jesus, in this ecclesia, this gathering, I pray that you would speak to us now. And more important, Father, I pray that uh, we would have ears to hear, that we would have eyes to see and a heart to understand what the Spirit has for us uh, this evening. And I pray for this grace in the precious name of Jesus. And so the context, right, John chapter 6, the context of the immediate context of uh, this particular passage that we're going to look at is the feeding of the 5,000. Are you guys familiar? Most of us, even if you're not a church person, you've probably heard of Jesus feeding the multitude. There are two occasions. One, he feeds about 4,000 people, and the other um, five, and so this is the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, technically, it was probably a lot more than 5,000 people because just the men are counted, and there was probably women and children there, so upward of maybe 15,000 know, people. So Jesus feeds a multitude. Uh, we know this occurs somewhere uh, near the city of Bethsaida, uh, which is on the, uh, somewhere close to the Sea of Galilee, which is north of Jerusalem, about 100-odd miles north of Jerusalem, uh, and they're outside in the countryside, far from any kind of um, city place, and so they're gathering Jesus is doing what he always does. He's preaching the kingdom, right? That's what Jesus preached. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand, so repent. You know, turn away from your stuff. Turn away from the world. Turn to God. And so he's preaching the kingdom, and Jesus is passionate about the kingdom. Do you know that? He just, you know, he's passionate. And so he's preaching, and he's preaching, and he's going on. You know, sometimes preachers go along. Do you know that? Because we're passionate about what we're talking about. And so Jesus wasn't the first preacher to go, I mean, go long. I mean, so we kind of, follow, when those of us who do go long, we follow his model. And so he's preaching all day long. Uh, people are getting hungry. It's coming towards the evening. They're getting hungry. And so people are starting to wonder, like, okay, how are we going to feed all these people? The disciples ask the question. And Jesus basically says to them, you feed them. And so they find a boy who has a couple of uh, 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 fish and a number of loaves of barley bread. And then uh, Jesus takes them. And he does what only God can do, right? He multiplies. And, and the whole multitude is fed. In fact, uh, there's even leftovers. And, and it's a big deal. I mean, it's kind of a, an amazing uh, miracle and uh, just revealing the nature of God, the provision of God, and, and, and just the, the, the person of who Jesus is. Because in the work that he does, he actually reflects his nature, his divine nature as God himself. And so, um, uh, the, the incredibly powerful moments um, in, in the ministry of Jesus. Now, what's interesting is John's gospel normally records, a, um, you know, it's not really consecutive. You think in chapter 6, is the early in Jesus' ministry. This is actually late in Jesus' ministry. Um, Jesus ministered for about three years. He was probably into the, the later, the second year to the third year at this point in chapter 6 of John's gospel. So Jesus has been doing this for a while, right? They, 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 he, you know, there's a word about Jesus has spread. Jesus is pretty well known in the area at this point. Um, and so um, a couple other things happened in the course of the story. If you read, I, I encourage you to read chapter 6 this week. I mean, there's a storm. There's, Jesus sends the disciples away. Uh, there's a whole thing going on. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on. Um, but it's the next day now, and, and that's where we'll pick up the story. So after the feeding of the 5,000, uh, now the next day, this is what it says in chapter 6 of John's gospel, verse 24. It says, once the crowd realized that um, um, neither Jesus nor his disciples were, were there, uh, Jesus had sent his disciples ahead of him in the boat. He had gone to pray. There was a whole 
walking on water thing, which is a really cool story. You read your Bible, there's, there's some cool stuff in there. Uh, and so uh, now the next day, they're looking for Jesus. They realize he's gone. And so they, um, they got into boats. They went to Capernaum, which was another large city uh, along the shores of the Sea of Galilee in search of Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him a question. Rabbi, when did you get here? Which is a weird question, Right? And it's not a very honest question. We'll see in a minute. And then verse 6, 26, it goes on. Jesus answers, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, but not because you saw the signs that performed, but because you ate of the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils. Turn to your name and say, do not work for food that spoils. All right? Do not work for food that spoils, he says, um, but, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on, the, uh, on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered them, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And so, he asked, so, he asked, so they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate that man in the wilderness. As it was written, he gives them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus says to them, very truly I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us the bread. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Right? Um, so let me, let me just set the kind of the, the larger historical context of what's going on here. Because if you don't know kind of the, the backstory of the Jewish people, you might miss some of the dialogue of what's going on. It's kind of like walking into a movie uh, and, and not really understanding kind of what the dialogue is about. So, so let me just kind of give you a bit of the historical context. Um, if the, 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 the story of Exodus in the second book of, of your Bible in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, is the book of Exodus, part of the Pentateuch, the Torah. Um, that tells just a very significant uh, kind of mile-marking moments in the history of, of Israel, of the nation of Israel, that really has informed and shaped their cultures for generations, and certainly had at this time and point in history in the first century. Uh, and so the story of Exodus was a big deal. If you don't know the story, I'll give you a brief kind of synopsis. Um, the sons of, um, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob uh, would eventually would go to, um, to Egypt, um, and, and there in Egypt, his sons would, would flourish, and they would, uh, they would grow into a large nation. Um, and as they grew as a people in the, in the borders of Egypt, um, the pharaohs of Egypt began to be threatened by them, and so eventually they enslaved them. And so the sons of Jacob and, and the growing nation of Israel became an enslaved nation. And for 400 years, they toiled and labored as slaves uh, in the nation of Israel. Sorry, in the nation of Egypt. Um, but God it was faithful to his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He heard the cries of the Israelites in, as slaves in Egypt, and he eventually sends a man named Moses to deliver them. And so Moses uh, rises up. He goes into Pharaoh's palace, and he says, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, help me out. No, you can't go. And what ensues is essentially a battle between uh, Yahweh, the one true God of the Israelites, and, and the, the deity, the pantheon of Egyptian gods. So all that's 10 plagues, if you know the story. All of those were really just the spiritual battle between the false gods of Egypt and the one true God of Israel. Um, and, 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 and who wins the battle? 
God does, right? Because he's God, right? He's not, he's not an idol. He, he's actually God. He's the God of all creation. And so eventually uh, the Israelites are, uh, are led out of uh, uh, Egypt by, by Moses into the wilderness. And there in the wilderness, they actually spend 40 years 40 years kind of wandering in the wilderness because even though God had delivered them out of Egypt, he still had to work Egypt out of them, right? And so there was this long process of testing and trial and shaping of the nation in this wilderness experience. Um, and there in the wilderness, you know, after the deliverance, um, we see the Israelites just praising God for his deliverance. But very shortly afterwards, they're actually cursing God because they're hungry, right? And they're wanting to go back to the enslavement because they don't have food. They long after the leeks and the onions and all the great food that they had as slaves in Egypt. Um, and so God, um, you know, he, 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 you know, he kind of, he tolerates their grumbling um, and then he, he provides for them the supernatural bread from heaven. Uh, the, the Israelites called it manna. And, and so they would go out every day, God would provide enough for that day. And on the sixth day, he would provide a double portion because on the seventh day, they were to rest. It was the Shabbat. They were to stop and rest. And so for 40 years, right? For 40 years, the Israelites are provided by God this free bread, like free bread without having to labor for it, without having to bake it, free bread for 40 years. Uh, and so this is the context, right? This is what they're, they're talking about. Um, you know, when, when they talk about this bread from heaven that our ancestors ate. So they were talking about this Exodus experience. Um, you know, as, as the history uh, progresses, eventually the Israelites do enter into the land of promise, um, into, into the land of Canaan. Um, however, there's still a lot of Egypt in them, and so they still begin to pursue these false gods. And so what, what inevitably happens is there's a cycle of, um, of just apostasy where the, where the Israelites turn away from God, turn to the false idols of the Canaanite nations. God's judgment comes. Eventually, uh, there is repentance, and God, in his grace and his mercy, restores them. And over and over, that cycle goes, right? There's, there's, a, there's a falling away. Uh, there's God's judgment. There's repentance. There's grace and mercy, and over and going throughout the history. So if you read through the history of, of Israel from Exodus pretty much all the way through to the coming of Messiah, you have this continual cycle of, of, of the people of God rejecting God uh, and God judging them for their rejection. They're sowing seeds of wickedness and evil. And we learned last week, what, what, what happens when you sow stuff? You reap stuff, right? And so they, they sowed evil and wickedness and they reaped God, reap God's judgment. And so that was the cycle over and over again. And all throughout all of this, God is faithful to his people. Um, don't you know that? Your God is faithful to you even when you are unfaithful. This is the goodness of God, right? And so God is, is, is all through this, he's working out his salvation plan for humanity. And, and Israel is a key component of that plan. He's working out salvation for all of humanity. And, and Israel is, is the person he's going to bring through, that, that the one who would save them. And so throughout their history, God raises up prophets who foretell the coming of this one, who, who would be the anointed one of God, the prophet, the one who would come in the same way as Moses came to deliver them but now he would do it on a grander scale and, and, and restore Israel once again uh, to, to, their, to their place of prominence uh, within the nations. 
Um, and, and at this point in, in Jesus' day, uh, in the first century, um, Israel is once again basically an enslaved people. They're under the oppression of the Roman people. They're enslaved in their own land. Um, they're, they're under hard, hard taxation. And, and the heartbeat of, of Israel is this longing for Messiah, right? All their hope and all their aspiration is kind of is geared towards the coming. One day, one day, Messiah is going to come, and he's going to deliver us, and he's going to set us free. And so they had all these hopes and all these aspirations and all the dreams of Messiah coming. And so uh, this would have been kind of the collective consciousness of the crowd that had gathered around Jesus um, there, there in, in the countryside uh, outside of Bethsaida on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, the, this idea that Messiah has coming. And so they were longing, right? There, there were a group of people in the crowd that were longing to find meaning in life. They were longing to have their lives uh, be significant. And in that respect, the crowd is not unlike us, Right? I mean, all of us want to have significance in life. All of us want our lives to be, have meaning. All of us want to have some kind of definition in our lives that will bring purpose and significance to, to the life that we live. I mean, this is a human condition. And this was certainly kind of part of the consciousness of the crowd as they gathered around the person, person of Jesus. Uh, they wanted their lives to matter. Um, and so, so it kind of raises the question for all of us, like, what, what is it that you're looking for in your life right now Right? Every one of us sitting here, let me just ask the question because the text kind of raises it for us, it is uh, that, that would uh, bring meaning and significance to your life. Like what are the things you're looking, f- looking for or looking at? Um, you know, maybe for some of you, it's, it's uh, significant relationships. Maybe it's, uh, it's, a, uh, it's a girlfriend, it's a boyfriend, it's a spouse. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your family members. Maybe it's through relationships that you find significance. For others of you, it might be a career or profession, right? For others of you, it might be uh, your possessions, like your real estate holdings or your, your I don't know, your, your, port, your, your, your investment portfolio, your bank accounts, whatever those possessions. Those, that's where it gives meaning and significance to your lives. And, and I think this is true for all of us. I know it's certainly true for me. As we grow older, um, you know, the quest for significance seems more and more urgent. It seems like you want to have legacy in your life. You just like, you know, like you've lived a certain length of time and you just want your life to matter that somehow that you would have some kind of lasting impact in this world. Uh, maybe that's, that's maybe just me, but I think that's a, a human thing. Um, um, and, and, and so, uh, I think what you begin to do, you realize is that life is fleeting as you get older. Um, and, and it's precious and it's limited. Uh, and so the fear of squandering this, this limited resource that is life, I think it, it becomes more and more kind of pressing on us. Um, and so the conversation that Jesus is having with the crowd here in, in John chapter 6, right, it, it cuts to the heart of these issues. Like, like the, the, the things that we're looking to for significance and meaning in this life. And, and so... Um, I think it's really important that, that we, we kind of con- consider that, maybe this week, that you would consider what is it that you're looking at you know, in this life to bring significance and meaning to your life. Um, they, they, were, they were looking in the crowd. They were looking to something or someone. Um, and and here's, the, here's kind of the, the cool thing about this crowd. Um, um, the people in the crowd believed that they had found meaning um, for their lives in the person of Jesus, Right? Like Jesus had been on the scene for some time now, right? And, and everyone in that audience that, that had gathered around the, in, the, in the crowd of, of the 5,000 that were fed or the 15,000 including the, the women and children, every single one of that person in that audience would have had some experience of Jesus up until this point. 
Uh, whether it was a personal first-hand experience where they had seen something, heard something, um, you know, directly from Jesus or heard about him from someone else, right? I mean, Jesus had been going throughout the Galilee at this point for almost two years, um, and, and he had been doing some incredible things, you know, healing lepers and healing. Maybe they were in, in Capernaum in the synagogue where just days before Jesus had healed a man with a crippled hand. Um, you know, maybe they had experienced, um, uh, you know, some of, some of the, the, the incredible teaching of Jesus as he spoke about the kingdom and he began to reveal God in a way that they had never heard any religious teachers talk about. And so Jesus w- would have been, uh, for them, uh, someone where they were looking to to find meaning in their lives that their hope and aspirations were beginning to gravitate and center and focus on the person of Jesus. Um, They were beginning to believe that Jesus, um, that there was a unique kind of quality of life available in and through Jesus. And and so John tells us uh, in in verse 14 of this chapter, uh, after the feeding of the 5,000, a very very significant part of this story, he says this, after the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, so that was the miracle of feeding of the feeding of the multitude, uh, they began to say, surely this is the prophet. Uh, they're, yeah, referring all the way back to the Exodus story, uh, where, where Moses had foretold that the one would come who would be a prophet, like in the same kind of uh, uh, mantle, if you will, of, of Jesus, who, who would bring deliverance to the people. And so they go like, well, that's him. Je- that's Jesus. And so it says here um, that, that Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, right, withdrew again to the mountains um, to be by himself. So, so the, the crowd here believed that Jesus held the answers um, to what they were looking for. They believed that Jesus was the means to the life that they, they longed for, that, that Jesus was, was going to help them achieve uh, all those aspirations, all those hopes that they had for the nation of Israel as they had for their, their lives, their families individually. They believed that Jesus would be a means for them to, to achieve those things. Um, but here's the really important thing to know about Jesus. Maybe you know this already, that Jesus will not, Jesus will not be conformed to the will or to the expectations of people, right? Uh, Jesus is Jesus, right? And and so he's not going to be conformed to the expectation and the demands of the crowd. Um, And and this is why it's so important for us to rightly understand who Jesus is. Um, Because if not, we'll always be tempted to conform him into our own image. We'll begin to try to shape him into the Jesus we want him to be, right? Rather than the Jesus that he is. Um, and so, um, which it really is just another form of idolatry, which is, you know, as human beings, that, that's what we're prone to. I think it was Luther who said that the human heart is an idol factory. We're always trying to conform things into our image. And so, uh, so the media context is the feeding of this 5,000. The historical context is this, this Exodus story, the, the promise of Messiah, the coming of a deliverer to the nation of Israel. Uh, and so this is the, the, the crowd. This is informing the crowd as they gather around the person of Jesus. Um, and so we have a, a crowd that, that believes that they had a f- found in Jesus a means to the life that they were longing for, the life that they desired. Um, but here's the thing. At the end of this conversation, that we'll, we'll read a, a little bit of it in a minute, um, the, this huge multitude of people, crowds of thousands of people, um, will eventually be reduced down to just a few dozen. Like by the end of chapter 6, the multitude disappears, right? The crowds disappear. 
And all that remains is just a handful of Jesus' closest followers. And so we have to, um, in fact, in John uh, 6, chapter 6, verse 66, which is a weird number. I just noticed that today. I was like, that's a strange number. It says this, but this time many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed Jesus. Right? So what happened? Like, what happened? Um, uh, you know, what a devastating day of ministry. It's like me at the end of tonight, every one of you like leaving, like we're never coming back to Waipuna, guys. You guys are nuts, right? I mean, that would be devastating, right? I mean, Jesus loved people, right? And he had poured out the last two two odd years of his life, right, uh, for the sake of, of bringing people into the kingdom, right? And now, like this, this huge multitude of people, like who had been gathering around Jesus, um, now just, just walk away. They just walk away. So what on earth happened? And here's, here's what happened. Is that Jesus offers them a definition of life that they just weren't willing to accept. Jesus defined life for them. And the crowd just wasn't willing to accept it. Because it wasn't what they wanted. It wasn't what they expected. It wasn't what they desired. And it required from them something that they weren't willing to give. Um, and, and so Jesus, um, just in a very powerful way, right, um, you know, he exposes the emptiness of the life that they were after. And so what I want to do in the remaining time that we have tonight is I want to show you three things that Jesus will always expose in our lives. Um, and, and this only happens, though, when we enter into an encounter with him, right? Um, you know, uh, I can stand you and tell you what they were, and, and you might just go like, yeah, whatever. You know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, but when you enter into a relationship with Jesus, when you encounter Jesus personally, uh, this is what he does, right? Um, and so we see it so clearly in this text. And so the first thing, if you take your notes, jot this down. Uh, Jesus will expose your true need. He'll expose your true need. Um, this is what, what verse 25 says. This is when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Uh, like, that's a weird question, right? Like, that's not really an honest question because that's not really what the, the people were interested in. You know, they, they weren't really as like Jesus. Tell us, like, how did you get here? Was it by car? Was it by a donkey? I don't know, by boat. I didn't have cars back then, so donkey, boat. How do, I mean, that's not really what was, what, that was just a, a question they asked, and it was a dishonest question. Um, and, and so w- what had just happened? Right, the context of the story, I just told you that Jesus had just fed a multitude. He had multiplied five barley loaves, and he had fed a multitude of people with them. They had just received free bread, is what happened, right? They, they got free bread, had a free lunch, and, and so they're back looking for more. That's what they're after, right? They asked the question, Rabbi, how did you get you? Like, where's the free bread? Like, that's really what they were after. And so Jesus says this. He answers them very directly. He says, really, truly, I tell you, you're, you are looking for me. Not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. And so he says to them, do not work for that food which spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Someone say eternal life. Eternal life, right? That, that, That food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So here Jesus is going to expose the conflict between their need, their perceived need and their actual need. How many of you know that there's a difference between some of the needs that you perceive and what you actually need, right? Oftentimes, there's a big difference between those two things. And Jesus is a master at unveiling that and exposing that. Now, now here's what's so, so cool, the way he does it. Uh, it's really obvious in the, in the original language, a little harder for us to read uh, in the English. Uh, but in the Greek language, um, there are two words for life. 
so, so for us, we have one word. We use it in multiple contexts, and, and it's just one word. But in, in the Greek language, there's two words. The, the one word is bios. And, and bios uh, means literally physical life and the things that sustain physical life. Um, there's a story, in, I think it's in, in, in Luke, uh, where this woman um, has an has a, a issue of bleeding, and she'd been going to the doctors all the time, and it says that she poured out her living trying to solve the problem. It's the word bios. It's kind of like the, the life, physical life and the things that sustain our physical life. There's another word um, in, in Greek that is used for life, and that's the word zoe. Someone say zoe. It's a cool, it's a, a lot of people, girls have that name. It's because that's what it means. It means life. Um, and, and, and this speaks of a life that transcends physical life. So something beyond, it's a life that is beyond just the physical life. Um, so, and so, um, you know, this is what Jesus, the word Jesus used when he says this. He says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal zoe, to a life that, ex- that transcends just your physical need and your physical substance and your physical life, but something that transcends that. Um, so, so in other words, um, you know, he, he's saying the hunger that you're experiencing in this life is a hunger that transcends just, just a bias solution to it, right? That you have a deeper need, right, than, than just being hungry. And the thirst that you have uh, will only be really slated um, if you pursue something that is deeper, that is more than simply a bias solution to that. Um, you know, and, and so they, the, the crowd, like many of us, they had a hunger that, uh, that they were seeking a bias solution for, which is a physical solution for, uh, what they really needed was a Zoe solution, right? They, they needed an eternal solution to this ongoing problem. So, um, and Jesus, and then Jesus exposes his need. He's, he says to the crowd, basically, he says that your concerns are about your stomach, but my concern is about your heart, right? Like you, you have this ongoing concern about what you're going to eat, but tomorrow you're going to be hungry again, right? And, and, and so the, the bigger issue that you need to deal with first is, is the heart issue. Um, and, and so this is where Jesus is going after. And here's something that you need to know about your heart, and I need to know about my heart, because this is what the Bible says, is that your heart is deceptively wicked, it is, right? We are, we are masters at deceiving ourselves. You know, we will tell ourselves all kinds of lies about ourselves, all kinds of reasons why we do what we do, right? And, and so uh, this is why Jesus always goes after our heart because he wants to give us a new redeemed heart. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you guys are intelligent people, um, so you know this. Um, when you look in the mirror and you look in the world, you know that something is wrong, right? I mean, like, I, I know this in my, when I look at my, my own personal life, as much as I love Jesus and I'm following Jesus, there's a part of me that just glitches. Any, anyone just feel that? You just kind of glitch. You just go like, I know I should be patient with my kids, but I just can't, like sometimes I just yell at them or I just feel this angst or, you know, and then you look at the world and like there's just no doubt that something has definitely gone awry in the world, right? There's just, it's not the way it ought to be. It should be. It could be, right? There's something has gone wrong in the world. And, and so the, the, the question though for most people is not do we agree that something's wrong in the world? Every, every person that I talk to, whether they're Christian or not Christian, they would agree with me like, yeah, some things are amiss, right? Not only in the world, but when I look in the mirror, I see something's amiss. Uh, and, and the question, though, is, like, do we agree with what God um, says that thing is, right? That, that's where the rub comes. And, and so, uh, generally, our tendency as human beings is to minimize the problem, right? And, and then when we, we do acknowledge that there is a problem, we try to find a solution that we can control, a solution that we can manage, right? 
And so, for instance, right, um, like, you know, this might play out in your life this way. You go like, well, I, I, I know there's a problem, right? I'm feeling a lot of pressure in life. And so I, I have this, 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 uh, this bias need, right, uh, that I think is bias need, so I'm going to find a bias, like a physical solution, so I'm just going to go to a bottle. I'm just going to go to a drug, right? And so we're looking for a, uh, for a Zoe solution in a bias, uh, you know, in a biased way. So I, and the same thing might be a problem. I, I, I understand there's a problem. I feel discontent with my life. Um, and so I, I, I'm going to try to find my Zoe, true life, uh, this real fulfillment that would satisfy me in, in, in experiences and maybe in physical relationships, in my sexuality, whatever it is. I'm going to just fill my life with these experiences and with pleasure and those things because I feel this discontent, so I'm going to try to stuff it full. I, I'm looking for a, a, a Zoe solution, you know, Jesus would say, in a biased manner. Right? And, 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 or it might be like, I know there's a problem. Like, I need affirmation. Um, I need to be valued. I need to belong. And, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seek that um, in, through the approval of men. Um, and, and again, Jesus would say, you know, you're seeking a biased solution to a Zoe need. And so uh, Jesus would say to us, uh, wherever it is that you're looking to find life, um, you know, that's what you're feasting on, right? That's your bread. If it's anything apart from me, that's what your bread is. That's what your drink is. Whatever you're looking to, to find significance and meaning in this life, uh, and you're feasting on that, that's your bread. Um, and so um, he is saying, if you find your, 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 your life in those things that will perish, you'll never be satisfied. You'll, you know, the high will eventually wear off. You know, the, 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 the pleasure will eventually fade. The approval of men will eventually dissipate. And so he says this, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to Zoe, eternal life. <coughs> so that's the first thing that Jesus will expose. He'll expose our real need uh, as, a, as opposed to our perceived need. The second thing Jesus will expose um, is your true motivation. This is where he says it in John 28, uh, 6 to 28. He says, then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answers them, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. <coughs> he goes on to say, For, uh, so then they asked him, what sign then do you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Excuse me, and Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it was not Moses that gave you the bread from heaven. It was my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life, gives Zoe to the world. And so what the crowd is looking for is like manna 2.0, right? They're just looking for some more free bread. Uh, 40 years of free bread, that was a good time for Israel. They're looking for more free bread. Um, and, and so... Um, you know, so they basically come to Jesus and they say, what sign, right? What sign will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Here's an idea. Give us more bread. That, that'll work for us. And so that's kind of what they're after. That's their motivation. And so Jesus would basically say to them, you're seeking me with the wrong motivation, right? You're seeking, uh, you're, you're not here for me, right? You're here to, to, to get something from me, right? And how many of you have friends or people in your life, maybe not good friends, but friends in your life, who you just know, they always have alternative motives when they call you. They're like, hey, how are you doing? Oh, thank you. You're amazing. An angel. Um, you know, how are you doing? And you just know because you just know their personality. They, that they didn't call you just to check in and see how you're really doing. They called you because they want something from you, right? And, and that's kind of the, the motivation that Jesus is an, an, an exposing here. Um, and so... 
the challenge that Jesus uh, puts to the crowd is the same challenge he would put to each and every one of us that is here today. Yeah, and that is, are you here because of the benefits that you receive from Jesus or because of the relationship you have with Jesus? You say that again. Are you here for the benefits you receive from uh, Jesus, those perceived benefits, whatever they are, because we all have different motivations, right? Or, or, or are you here because of a relationship that you want to nurture with Jesus? Um, and, and, and it's obvious that, that their motivation is wrong by the question they ask. They ask this question, what work should we do, right? Because here's the thing, right? And this is so powerful, jot this down. When you move relationship, all that is left is work, right? If there's no relationship, then all you're doing is kind of this, this work kind of contractual environment that you have with people because there's no deep, personal, intimate relationship there. Um, and so... Uh, they basically come to Jesus and they say, we want you to be the middleman, to kind of negotiate with God for us, right? Like, we want you to do some stuff for us. Um, and so Jesus would say to them, hey, man, you're not coming to me for substance, right? You're not coming to me for relationship. You're, you're just here because of what you can get from me, right? I'm simply a means to your end. And Jesus answered them, the work of God is this. What's the work of God? To believe, right? To believe in who? Jesus, the one in whom he sent. Jesus is saying, I am the life that you're looking for, right? You're looking for life in all these different things. You're saying, I am the life that you're looking for. I am the Zoe solution to your bios problem. And if your motivation is simply the benefit that I provide rather than the relationship that, that you might have with me, then you'll continue to, to thirst. You'll continue to hunger. You'll continue to eat and never be satisfied. You'll continue to drink and never slate your thirst. Because what you're looking for is a deeper need. And so if you come with that motivation simply for what you're going to get from me, you're actually going to miss me. And that's exactly what happened with the crowd, right? Um, and this is the danger of impersonal Christianity, right? Uh, we seek Jesus for what he offers rather than who he is. Uh, we're in this for the perceived benefits of Christianity rather than the Jesus of Christianity, you know, and again, like the motivations why people come to church and do this sort of thing, it's like they're numerous, right? I mean, sometimes we, we come out of guilt, you know, like you just grew up in a family that kind of like you have to go to church and now you just feel guilt-ridden if you don't. So, I mean, guilt might, might motivate a lot of people. Sometimes, you know, even the good motivations, sometimes people like to give and serve because it makes them feel good about themselves, right? Sometimes it feels good when you give and you serve, right? And so even that motivation becomes selfish, you know, it's, it's a self-centered motivation. Um, it, it could be to make your wife happy. It could be to make your parents happy. You know, uh, it could be a family thing. It could be just a traditional thing that you've just done, and so you continue to, to do it. Um, but when your motivation is simply to receive the perceived benefits rather than uh, a relationship with Jesus, right? If you want the benefits of Christianity without the Jesus of Christianity, uh, there's going to be disparity in your life, right? There's going to be a disconnect somewhere along the line. You'll be one way in, in public and a different way in private, right? You, you might talk about God a lot uh, in, in public, but never talk to God in private. You might, you know, expound on the Bible and the Word of God in public, but never actually read the Word of God in private. There's going to be this disparity, right? You know, and, uh, you know, the motivation, you know, is, is simply to, to receive the perceived benefits and not the Jesus of Christianity. It'll change your schedule, right? But it won't change your heart. I'll just let that sit for a minute. <laughs> um, but so what changes your heart? 
Well, I know what changes my heart is my relationships, right? I mean, my relationship with Jessica has radically changed the man I am. My relationship with my girls changes, has changed over the years, has changed the person that I am. My relationship with many of you, the, the deep, intimate relationships I have, the accountability and the, and the, the iron-sharpening iron that, that we have in community here has changed me. It's relationships that change me, right? And certainly my relationship with Jesus has radically changed my life. Um, you know, when you're in a personal relationship with Jesus, it will definitely change you. It will change your heart. It will change your desires. It will change your motivations. It will change the way you perceive needs. Right? It just changes us. But, but it's all rooted in relationship, right? Um, this, is, this is the beholding, right? Moment by moment. That, that we are being transformed into the image of the Son, right? But that change will never come, right, if you simply want things from Him. You know, that, that change will, will never come, right, if you don't actually know Him, right? If you just know about Him, but you don't actually know Him, and you've never spent time with Him. Um, and so Jesus, um, you know, when you begin to encounter Him, He will always expose uh, your need, for what it truly is. Um, he'll always expose your true motivations. Right? And then thirdly, jot this down, Jesus will expose your allegiance, like the things that you're actually aligning your life to. And so this is, uh, this is where everything falls apart for the crowd. Right? And so this is what Jesus says. He says, when Jesus declared, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Right? And this is kind of where, where, and so the remainder of chapter 6, Jesus is just going to unpack what he just said here in different ways. He's just going to unfold what he's meaning. In fact, he's going to go on in, in, in verse 53 and say something kind of that just was like so outrageous to those that heard it. He says this, he says, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh, right, of the Son of Man, and you drink his blood, you have no life, you have no Zoe, right, in you. And the crowds kind of hear this definition of Jesus' life, or what Jesus is saying life is, and they're like, sorry, we're out, right? We're out, right? We're out. Um, and so, so basically what Jesus is saying, yeah, I said, I've not come to bring you bread. I am the bread, right? I, I, I've not, not come to improve your life. I am life. Right? And the crowd could not accept that, right? They reject Jesus' definition of life. And Jesus is saying, true Zoe, true life, right, it is found only in me. I am the bread of life. And Jesus is saying, I'm both the means of life, and I am the meaning for life. Like, that's a huge statement. I mean, I acknowledge it. I mean, like, Jesus is making a huge claim about who he is. Now, if this was just like me saying that, like I am the means of life, I'm the meaning of life, I, I would suspect every single one of you to walk out and run, right? But this is who Jesus is, right? These are the claims that Jesus makes about himself. This speaks to his identity as the very author of life. Um, and then Jesus doesn't even stop there. He gets even more polarizing. He says, whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. And Jesus basically looks at the crowd, you know, um, and then he turns, in turns, looks at you and me, and he says, I am all that you need. I am all that you need. To have me and nothing else means that you have everything. 
Come on. And so therefore, Jesus would say, turn from everything you're looking at to find meaning and substance in your life, right? You know, turn from everything that, you, that, that you're trying to bring, bring, bring these, 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 you know, Zoe solutions, you know, through bios means, these, these lively kind of substance means, because your need is so much deeper. And so, so Jesus is redefining that life. He's basically drawing a line in the sand. He's kind of like, I am the means and the meaning. And as soon as, as he calls for, for that allegiance to him, right, that, that you don't come for what you get from me, but you come because of me, because of who I am. As soon as he draws that line, the crowd dissipates. They're like, no, we're out. We're out, you know. John tells us in, in verse 60 that on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? You know, Jesus defines a life that is found only in relationship with him. And the crowd simply could not accept it. Um, you know, the crowd wanted Jesus to be someone they shaped into their own image. They wanted Jesus to be a king. They wanted Jesus to be a politician. They wanted Jesus to be a meal ticket. They wanted Jesus to be an entertainer, a magician, a healer. Um, they wanted to conform him to their own image. They wanted to conform him to their own expectation. And the crazy thing is that they were around him. They were impacted by his ministry. They were impressed by him. They even experienced him. But ultimately, they missed him. I mean, this is a sobering text, right? I didn't realize it'd be so quiet in here. Um, you know, what they had was an impersonal relationship with Jesus rather than a personal relationship. And ultimately, it caused them to miss him. And unfortunately, like, that's where so many, you know, people in our culture, you know, other people in other churches, not you guys. You guys are all in, so just... But other people, like, we have this impersonal relationship with Jesus, right? He's kind of like our Facebook friend. Um, you know, but Jesus says, I am the means and the meaning of life. You know? You know, and, and so many people kind of will look to the bread that they have in their hand, Right? And they'll close the hand around it, and they'll say, this is all I need, right? This is all I need, right? This drug, this bottle, whatever it is, my addiction, that's all I need. You know, my job, my career, my success, my family, my roots, this is all I need, right? This is, I have it right here. Um, and Jesus is saying, all those things will perish, right? All those things will spoil. They will not give you meaning and significance in this life. I am the means, and I am the meaning. I am the bread of life. And so feast on me, right? Come to me, right? Come into relationship with me, not from a distance, but let's spend time together. Let, let's talk about your, your, your needs. Let's talk about your motivations. Let's talk about your allegiance. And let's do life, real life, true life together. That's the invitation. And for many in this crowd, they just couldn't accept it, right? They walked away. But there were a few who didn't. There were a few who didn't. Later in this chapter, you know, he goes to his 12, and he says, what about you guys, right? Are you ready to leave too? And Peter steps up, and he says, man, where can we go? Like, where can we go? You hold the words of eternal Zoe, of eternal life. You are life. 
You are the bread of life. So where can we go? Right, where can we go? And so here, here's what we're going to do. We're going to close right now. Um, we're going to continue to behold Jesus uh, in, in, in and through a time of worship. We kind of come close to the hour here, but it's Friday night. You guys got nothing better to do, right? Uh, <laughs> so we're going to worship a little. <laughs> Except our moms who've got kids and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, so, so we're going to take some time. We get it, I mean, I feel it's appropriate time to do communion, right? Um, the elements that are represented by, by um, the communion is the flesh and is the blood of Jesus. And not literally, symbolically. This is what Jesus was talking about. That if you want to commune with me, if you want, you have to partake of me. You have to come into relationship with me. And there are many of you here, I know tonight, that are in relationship with Jesus. And so allow this time to be a time of reflection. Um, we're going to invite the band back up here. Uh, they're going to create a little space for us just to, to sit for it. And I would say as a time of uh, reflection, just consider what your true needs are. Spend some time with Jesus. Ask him, like, I've been maybe looking for some things um, and thinking these are my needs, but what are my true needs? Uh, think about your motivations. Like, why is it that you do what you do as a Christian? You know, what is driving you? Are you looking simply for the benefits from Jesus, or are you in it because of relationship with Jesus? And then consider your allegiance. Like, what, what, what is it that you've aligned your life to? What is it that defines life? And when Jesus says, I am the meaning, both the meaning and the means of life, can you align yourself to that? So when he says, I am the bread of life, like let me be your sustenance, let me bring significance to your life. Um, is that something you've aligned your life to? And so reflect on that, and then when you're ready, come and participate in communion. Um, well, I always say this, that um, these tables are not just a remembrance for those of us who believe, but also an invitation of grace to those who are yet to believe. And so maybe tonight, for the first time, you're just considering Jesus, who he really is, for the first time. And, you know, not all your questions are answered, but you sense the Spirit of God wooing you and calling you to come. And so as an act of faith, as an act of, um, of turning towards God, uh, come up to the tables, participate um, in, in the bread, the only bread that will ever be broken for you. You know, all other breads will never break for you. They will break you. But Jesus is the bread that was broken for you. Um, and in him, you might find forgiveness. In him, you might find freedom. In him, you might find significance. In him, you might find true meaning and life, real life. And so come and participate. Um, and then if, if that is you for the first time, you know, please don't leave without telling me or telling someone on the worship team, someone you can recognize. Write it in the Connect card. We'd love to connect with you and journey with you as you grow in your understanding of who Jesus is. All right, so I'm going to pray. Uh, we're going to worship. Um, if you do have kids, maybe you kind of sneak out and go get your kids. Uh, so make, make the children's ministry happy with me. Um, come back and have communion with your kids. That would be awesome. This, these elements will be here. Um, and so we're just going to worship. Um, and uh, I'm going to pray. And, um, and then we'll see you guys hopefully next week if I didn't scare you away. All right. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness and grace. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. And thank you. I know this is a strong word. Um, it's a powerful word. It's a convicting word, uh, but it's word of life. Um, it, it brings life to us. It, it reveals and it, and it exposes what needs to be exposed so that we can be uh, vulnerable and open before you. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would continue to work on our hearts, continue to work on my heart, continue to shape me and mold me as we behold you, as we gaze upon you, as we, as we study you, not what you have done and what you have said, but you, 
as we behold the glory of the Lord, um, that we would be transformed, we would be changed into the people you desire us to be. And I pray for this grace in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen.